0: Welcome to the Hooked on Health podcast. I am your host, Dr. Sean Lorne I'm the author of Stop Aging in Its Tracks and the owner of Concierge Physical Therapy, a sports medicine physical therapy practice with multiple locations in Massachusetts. Please sit back and enjoy the show.
1: So I uh, went to medical school at Albany Medical College in um Uh, 2007 graduated. 2011, I decided to go into medicine in the first place. You know, down the typical pathway of a lot of folks who just have an interest in science to begin. But um, uh, as I continued in my uh, education, both secondary and in college, um, uh, just started to really take a, a keen interest in older adults and um, you know what uh, older adults and families uh, face as they approach, aging and what that means for the individual, what that means for the family. And there's, as uh, you all uh, know, and maybe experiencing a wide spectrum um, of, of experience there. And uh, in medical school, I had the opportunity to uh, be taken under the wing of a geriatrician who does all of his practice through home care. Um, And I think that that's absolutely amazing. It was not uh, something that I could picture myself doing full-time, but I could picture myself as being a geriatrician and taking care of people across the entire spectrum of care from home to hospital to skilled nursing and so forth. Um, So, um, I should also add in that uh, uh, I uh, was Jesuit educated in high school and in college, and the uh, Jesuits particularly try to teach you to approach your education with a sense of purpose and service, and this is just where um you know, I found my strengths and where I found that I could probably do the most good. So I continued on that path and I've been very happy with it. Um, so, since uh, graduating from medical school, I did my residency at Mount Auburn Hospital, chose that hospital because it was a, a mid sized community place um, as opposed to the Ivory Towers downtown Boston, which I'm glad that we have and that they're great for research, they're great for tertiary care, but for everyday bread and butter. Uh, primary care, uh, geriatrics, especially, um, uh, with the population that we see at Mount Auburn, you know, that that's where I see the most value where people have easy access to their physicians and physicians who know each other, uh, as far as these subspecialists who might be involved in somebody's care can, uh, reach each other, know, um, you know, uh, each other's strengths and interests and are able to, uh, Uh, render uh, very effective care that way to each individual uh, patient with their um, uh, individualized needs. Um, So I was happy to be at Mount Auburn for residency, was a chief resident there there right after my residency, went to MGH for one year for geriatrics fellowship, where I got to experience a lot of uh, in-depth inpatient, outpatient, as well as uh, rehabilitation and long-term care, and then was able to um, happily return to my home institution of Mount Auburn to join the geriatrics practice there. And currently, I spend some time in Mount Auburn, but also a lot of time at a retirement community in uh, Lincoln, Massachusetts, um, uh, where they uh, also truly have the spectrum of care from independent living to skilled nursing and uh, assisted living and memory care in between. Uh, So it's really uh, been a uh, Uh, a seat down in uh, exactly where I wanted to find myself. Um, So that's the, a little bit more than a thumbnail, but hopefully not exhausting.
0: That's great. You know, and I think, uh, you know, I'd love for you to elaborate a little bit on the model at, uh, you know, at the Commons in Lincoln, because it is, it is unique. The CCRC um, type setup is something that's you know, it's newer to me. Um, I know it's a, probably a little bit newer to Massachusetts, but talk a little bit about that and your role and just what it is for, for our audience and then, you know, your role in that sort of healthcare
1: setup. Yeah. Well, the role itself has changed a lot over the past year and a half in particular, (laughs) but um, uh, the the basic premise being that um, uh, somebody will come into a retirement community, continuing care retirement community, um, either uh, first at the independent living level or at the assisted living level, uh, uh, and then with the opportunity to Um, uh, progress through the community as uh, his or her uh, care needs increase. So if somebody uh, comes in at the independent living level and then may unfortunately experience uh, medical events, um, uh, functional declines that require them to have more care, um, uh, they might start by bringing in some Um, additional help by way of home health aides in addition to intermittent home health services like physical therapy and skilled nursing. Um, But as uh, people might uh, continue to progress and decline, um, they uh, may find themselves needing more care than can be reliably um, uh, rendered uh, uh, in the independent living environment uh, despite bringing in outside care. So then they can move over to the assisted living part on the same campus. And the idea of course, is that you don't leave the campus uh, ever, um, you know, regardless of what your needs are across the spectrum of care. So uh, into assisted living where there are nurses on site all of the time and uh, able to help to uh, assess and reassess and um, uh, formulate uh, care plans that will keep people uh, happy, healthy and safe. And uh, if memory uh, becomes a severe issue, then uh, a memory care unit uh, with uh, people who have the skills to uh, often non-pharmacologically, which is important, uh, deal with um, health and behavioral issues that come up when uh, people uh, find themselves in those unfortunate circumstances where memory is uh, inhibiting their ability to uh, live on their own uh, more independently. And then uh, skilled nursing being the, uh, the, um, the most intensive uh, care uh, environment on this type of campus, uh, we mostly focus on rehabilitation and then discharge back to independent or assisted living. But in some cases, uh, such intensive uh, nursing and custodial care is needed that we keep people in the skilled nursing environment long term in order to meet their care needs.
0: Yeah. So, and it's, you know, it seems to be like a, you know, a seamless transition too. So if you're in an independent care, you can kind of get the skilled nursing care that you need. There's always no good bed, Right.
1: Right, right. And it's not always a linear progression. I would say most often it's not a linear progression. So somebody might need to go to the hospital acutely, come back to skilled nursing and then get discharged back to independent living. Or if they're not quite at the point where they need the hospital, um, some communities like this one, uh, where I am, uh, have the option to uh, be transitioned directly over to skilled nursing, which is not always an option if somebody is in um, uh, a uh, community by themselves and by community I mean in an independent home um, like out in Lincoln out in Sudbury and um, they find themselves in a position where they um, uh, perhaps have experienced a functional decline and in injury um, and we can oftentimes avoid a hospitalization by being able to bring that individual right over to skilled nursing on a waiver or uh, within a different financial situation that's been uh, worked out when they signed uh, onto the uh, being in the community uh, such that they don't need to worry about Medicare covering a uh, skilled nursing stay just because they haven't gone to the hospital first, which might not be necessary.
0: And I think, so it's interesting you say that, you know, the Medicare, the insurance stuff starts to get really complicated. And, you know, that's probably a topic for a whole another conversation. That's why I
1: tried to steer away from it immediately, but it was necessary in order to really describe that piece of it.
0: Yeah. So, you know, in order to access and just, you know, really from a 30,000 foot view, in order to access for most people with a Medicare benefit, a, uh, you know, a skilled nursing stay and skilled nursing is typically intensive, you know, an hour of PT, an hour of OT and whether or not you need it, you know, an hour of speech or 30 minutes um, per day up to seven days a week depending on what the need is, you have to have a three-day hospital admission in order to qualify Mm -hmm. for that. And that might have changed. I don't know. This seems like the rules are always changing, but.
1: Yeah, and they've changed changed a a little bit. Um, Some insurance plans allow for what's called a a three-day waiver such that if somebody finds themselves in the emergency department or admitted to the hospital floor for only one or two days, but they're really medically appropriate for discharge and would just be waiting on the floor uh, for no other reason uh, other than to uh, meet the Medicare standard of three overnights in order to be eligible to be covered for skilled nursing, then that insurance plan will work with the case manager and um, grant them this waiver in order to go to skilled nursing early when it's actually appropriate instead of just being exposed to the hospital environment and infections and things that we don't want.
0: Yeah. Which, you know, it's just, it's, it's incredible how, how complicated the system can get, but, uh, it just, just to summarize what uh, Dr. Rob is talking about. So there's many different settings of care for, you know, as we get older and, um, in the community that Dr. Rob uh, practices in, there's an independent living section, which really means there's no help at all. So that's just like you might, might be living in your house. It's independent living. Uh, there's assisted living, which is just one level up, which basically it's, it's for folks, and correct me if I'm wrong, Rob, that need just a little bit extra, right? So, you know, difficulty maybe with transfers or, you know, performing their everyday activities, ADLs, mm-hmm. but it's very, you know, it's, it's, it's not fully independent, but it's, you know, it's not very hands-on. Right, mm-hmm. Medication administration
1: can be worked into the package as well. Um, you know, so uh, functional, yes, that's usually first and foremost in terms of that, uh, what's revolving around that decision. But often with functional does come cognitive um, uh, disability, and it might not be at the point where somebody needs to be in a memory unit, but um, at the same time might not be safe to self-administer medications, either for a, a cognitive or for from a functional perspective, not able to handle the pills so um you know that uh that's a, a type of environment where medications can be handled safely by nursing staff Just yeah you know that yeah
0: that's great and i would love to maybe dive in a little later about some cognitive exercises or some activities yeah. that folks can do to, to hopefully maybe ward off, you know, that trip toward, yeah.
1: <laughs> toward Absolutely. The memory,
0: you know, cause there are yeah. things that can be done. Yeah. Um, we're going to get into that in a little bit. Um, yeah. So we've got, you know, that layer. So we talked about independent yeah. assisted memory, memory care, assisted living. And then we've got our skilled nursing, which is sort of, you know, the most acute in, in the setting that you're in but not as acute as a, an acute care setting for rehab. So let's say you broke up, you got a motorcycle accident or you fell down a set of stairs, you might spend a little bit of time in the hospital at you know, a Mount Auburn or an MGH,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, you know, and then you'd get transferred to a Spalding inpatient rehab, which is three hours of intense rehab every single day. Uh, You have to qualify for that. And then typically from that setting, you may go home or you may go to a skilled nursing facility, but it's just, these are all the things on the call today, you know, why we're, what we're hoping to prevent, you know, down, down, you know, these decision trees and hopefully we can avoid some of these with some of our, our education today, Mm -hmm. Um, but let's just dive right in. So, so let's
1: just go over geriatrician. What are some of the most common conditions that you treat, Rob? Um, So, uh, I'd, I would say orthopedics is uh, a big one. Um, let, let me break it down by, by body systems and I'm not going to list every single uh, body system. Uh, you know, I'll, uh, I'll list the uh, the most common ones. So orthopedic, cardiovascular, neurologic, um, gastrointestinal um, and um, uh, cognitive, you know, which kind of uh, uh, falls under uh, neurologic as well. Um, so uh, as I uh, Uh, said going down the list, um, cardiovascular, uh, oftentimes people with um, uh, uh, lifelong accumulation of cholesterol in the arteries leading to maybe a heart attack or maybe just decline in heart function leading to congestive heart failure, um, at which point uh, when somebody is diagnosed with either heart attack or heart failure on at least five new medications from the point of that diagnosis chronically for the rest of your life. So that's uh, a big complication. Uh, Orthopedic, you know, we'll, um, I think we'll uh, take a deeper dive into that today because of the nature of the conversation. Uh, But um, uh, a a lot of uh, fractures, particularly hip fractures, secondary to falls, um, a lot of uh, injuries from Uh, either uh, falls or uh, just trying to perform activities of of daily living, repetitive activities, sometimes that results in in, in, an injury. Um, Neurologic um, uh, uh, strokes um, and um, uh, Parkinson's disease, uh, dementia, um, gastrointestinal uh, constipation uh, becomes a big issue for a lot of people um, as they uh, uh, get to be octogenarians, nonagenarians, centenarians, And, um, uh, I also see, I wanted to tack this on, uh, sleep disturbance, um, uh, you know, uh, plus or minus any other underlying depression or anxiety, um, is something that I see very frequently as well.
0: Sleep disturbance is an interesting one. I know, uh, yep. many people, you know, and maybe combining restless leg syndrome in there too. And, yep. um, you know, I think that's a really, you know, if you have any tips for that, you know, I'd love to get into that in a little bit, but, um, okay. you know, of all of those conditions, you know, and obviously my brain goes to orthopedic, but which ones do you feel as though are the most easily preventable and, and,
1: and modifiable? Mm-hmm. Um I I would like to scoop those uh, both under one umbrella, but it might be impossible. You know, easily preventable, you know, in order to truly prevent cardiovascular disease, it takes a lifetime or at least decades of dedication to a healthy diet or healthier diet. If somebody's making a lifestyle change, avoidance of toxic habits, uh, good exercise. And we can delve into the definition of what good exercise uh, is um, and, guidance on that um, so so i think that um you know that is um uh preventable it can have the most significant impact um but uh, in terms of ease of implementation and how swiftly something can be modified in order to produce uh, results in, within a relatively short time frame you're not going to get that for for cardiovascular um but what fortunately you know i've seen as i've gone on in my um uh, uh so far a decade of experience as a practicing physician is that the functional deficits that can occur in the setting of um, either fall or some other um, underlying medical illness uh, can be uh, modified and supported and improved uh, pretty, Uh, pretty readily in a lot of cases and pretty quickly. We admit somebody to uh, the rehab setting unable to walk and two weeks later or less, Somebody is up on their feet, often with a walker, sometimes able to graduate from a walker to a cane in that short time period and able to go home or able to go back to assisted living. So for uh, for those um, who really like to see uh, almost instantaneous uh, results from their interventions, you know, that's where the money is. Um, uh, you know, so uh, just getting away from the uh, straight um uh, injury and functional impairment because of those. For example, if somebody goes into the hospital with a congestive heart failure exacerbation, they might be so short of breath and uh, unable to uh, get up and do anything that uh, their body deconditions within three days. And if they're in the ICU for three days and then on the uh, uh, regular medical floor for four days, um, that's uh, at least a week before they get to any um, uh Uh, rehabilitative uh, institution where they can really start making uh, progress back towards uh, their baseline. And do you get seen by physical therapy in the hospital? Yes, but it's really usually just as a point of assessment uh, rather than uh, intensive intervention. And there are some projects that uh, particularly intensive care doctors are trying to implement, but um, it's not Uh, uh, the standard of care right now, by any means, trying to get people rehabilitated before things really take hold and people have a massive episode of deconditioning that's very hard to come back from. So, um, you know, uh, uh, oftentimes uh, we uh, see people who are incredibly deconditioned and not able to uh, ambulate independently, not because they had a hip fracture, but because they had uh, a congestive heart failure episode where they couldn't breathe. So they couldn't do anything. And um, they really need to be encouraged and taught how to recondition their bodies. But that can happen uh, more quickly in a lot of circumstances than um, a lot of people think.
0: Yeah, that's great. And and I think it's interesting you talk about, you know uh, you know, just the intervention and the prevention piece, right? So, you know, you know, my next question to you is, um, from an intervention and a prevention piece. So let's say somebody does just a checkup with you at the office, right? Mm -hmm. What are you looking for in your medical, you know, observation and and inspection, uh, to kind of guide you to like, what are you looking for to then give advice to somebody to be able to prevent a fall or or acute um, respiratory or cardiovascular,
1: you know? So, so yeah. Yeah. Uh, So uh, assessment begins for me really in the waiting room. I look for people, how people get up from the chair and walk into the exam room and what that looks like, you know, are they able to uh, bounce up without the assistance of their arms in order to rise from the chair or just um, uh, reach down and uh, barely push themselves off? Or do they uh, dig in with their arms onto the, uh, the the arms of the chair and struggle to push themselves up using their arms and legs and sometimes uh, more arms than legs to get up from a seated position. Some people might end up rocking themselves back and forth a couple times to gain momentum in order to stand up, which can be a dangerous situation. One might surmise in propelling themselves forward and not stopping themselves <laughs> in time to get up um, uh, or to, uh, to uh, achieve a standing position without um, uh, moving forward into a fall. And, um, So so I'll look for how they uh, get up. I'll look for people, uh, how people uh, walk into the office. Is uh, their gait steady? Is it unsteady? Are they using an assistive device like a cane or a walker and are they using it appropriately and safely? Is that the right device for them? Uh, Is the gate wide based? Is it narrow? Are they taking long strides or short strides? And what's the speed of the gate? All of this that happens within five to 10 seconds provides a lot of information as far as somebody's functional status and what uh, the risk is in terms of uh, having a fall or just Uh, progressing uh, uh, downward um, uh, towards an inability to um, uh, ambulate uh, safely and effectively and perform activities of daily living on their own. So that's where the assessment starts. And when somebody is in the office, of course, we're checking the vital signs. We wanna make sure that blood pressure is controlled so that they're at uh, lower cardiovascular and cerebrovascular risk stroke. you know, we want to make sure that, um, uh, uh, you know, somebody's uh, overall uh, conditioning and strength is intact on the uh, uh, musculoskeletal overview, um, any aches and pains, that might be compromising somebody's uh, uh, functional status and causing uh, people to um, compensate by using muscle groups in a way that is actually leading long-term to injury, Uh, that's something that we absolutely want to pay attention to is that right knee that's been acting up causing somebody to favor that uh, right side and uh, ultimately causing them back pain or shoulder pain if they're using their arms to compensate uh throughout the day as well leaning on things leaning on the walker inappropriately um, uh, it, it, and trying to address uh everything that's coming up as sequelae of the that initial deficit as well as the initial deficit itself can a cortisone injection or a hyaluronic acid injection with an orthopedist uh help to modify the pain and thereby um decrease all of these compensating mechanisms that p- patients are um, unwittingly developing and injuring themselves with. Um, so that uh, uh, I hope that starts to give a flavor uh, about how the the assessment goes and what I'm looking for.
0: Yeah, that's great and I think you know that's a great um, and for loved ones too, you know if you're seeing, you know, your, your mother, your father, your, you know, uncle, your sister, you know, somebody who's starting to get to the point where they can't get it up and out of a chair, you know, that's a big issue. And, you know, I always, I always talk about the single leg stance test, right? So if you can't balance on one foot, you know, for more than five seconds, you're at risk for an injurious fall. And, and typically as, as we age, our, our gait starts to get, we call it shuffling gait, but you start to take a, you know, you shuffle because you want to be in double limb stance. You don't want to be balancing on one foot. And there's a a number of reasons for that. But, you know, as a geriatrician, it's, it's excellent that you're looking for that because that should immediately, um, you know, result in a a referral to PT, um, Mm -hmm. you know, for, for a balance assessment. And I'd love to like, you know, let's focus on like the 50 year old, like that active 40 to 60 year old um, person who, really just wants to prevent turning into that person in the waiting room who's really struggling to get out of the chair, right? So that's what I want this kind of webinar to to target. And I wanna talk about some of those prevention tips and and what you tell your patients and and what you wish you could tell your patients. So if you're seeing, you know, on average a 70 plus or a 65 plus population, what you wish you could have told them when they were 40 or 30, like where does that conversation begin, Rob?
1: Yeah, yeah. And um, broadly, I would say, uh, stay active, eat right, avoid toxic habits, and stay socially engaged. Um, but there's a lot underneath each one of those headings. Um, yeah. You know, much easier said than done. And even if uh, somebody. Is trying to do all of those things right, um, there are a lot of pitfalls that uh, can occur that um, might not lead to the outcome that that individual is going for. So, just taking um, each one of those headings a little bit deeper. So, staying active, you know, we all uh, know that even just walking um, at least 4,000 steps per day prevents. Um, or de- decreases the risk of death significantly. Um, you know, and uh, the, what does that look like? Four thousand steps? Is it a mile? Is it a half a mile? So that that would be. Um, I would say that's probably, a yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. It depend, yeah it dep- depends on the stride length and so forth. But, um, you know, some of the more, more recent studies have uh, kind of centered around that at least 4,000 step mark. That might seem like a lot or um, a very small amount to some individuals, but at least that indicates a not completely sedentary lifestyle, if you're able sure. to re- reach that, um, you know, as opposed to the, uh, 10,000 steps that a lot of people try to reach, which is not bad, but, um, you know, might seem like a lofty goal for some. So even just starting small, making sure that, uh, one is not completely sedentary is a great thing to do. Um, but uh, going going back to the, just the example of walking, yes, you know that, that is the first uh, step. No pun intended. That um, you know, the pun is to me, yes. <laughs> <laughs> within one and a half seconds. Pun pun intended. But. Um, the, yeah, yes, you want to remain ambulatory and the first um, uh, 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 the way to initiate that process is to ambulate. But, you know, the, there are a lot of things that can and should be done in addition to that and around that in order to uh, make exercise, you know, the effort toward exercise actually effective. Just walking every day um, is good for the cardiovascular system. It's good for balance, um, but it's not going to um, necessarily. Prevent over the next forty years. You're talking about a fifty-year-old over the next forty to fifty years of um, you know somebody uh, developing uh, osteoporosis, developing rotator cuff injuries, developing um, what we refer to as proximal muscle weakness, and that particularly has a bearing when we're talking about what we were before with getting out of a chair. Those quad muscles, uh, you know, being uh, staying strong enough um, uh, uh, and healthy enough in order to be able to uh, perform, um, certain movements safely and painlessly. So, um, Getting in touch with a physical trainer, if not physical therapist, at least for one or two time consultation when you're feeling well uh, in order to get advice on what exercises uh, one should be doing in order to uh, ultimately protect yourself 30, 40, 50 years down the line um, from becoming injured and or getting deconditioned is really important. So uh, for individuals, even backing up to your 30s, you should be doing rotator cuff exercises in order to prevent injuries there after your 40s, uh, uh, making sure to um, start doing uh, squats uh, safely, you know, and the, hence the need for guidance around that uh, in order to maintain that function. And certainly above uh, 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 so your 50-year mark, doing all of the above. So you want aerobic, but you also want strength training. And um, uh, in some cases, uh, targeting on balance training um, uh, might be necessary and prudent. Um, But if you're doing all these other things preemptively with cardiovascular and targeted uh, strength training under appropriate guidance from a professional who knows what he or she is doing, uh, you're um, doing a lot towards preventing a a really intensive need for focused balance training, because all of that is going to be worked in with um, uh, everything else. Uh, if you hit the literature, you will see that there is a significant link between regular performance of tai chi and decreased falls because it does help with the neuromuscular connections and maintaining balance for older adults. So that is something that we know can help to modify, especially for people who are in their later decades, um, and you know that goes a bit of. Uh, beyond the 50 year mark that we're focusing. So I can, in order to answer the question, I felt like I kind of had to st- uh, start even earlier and then go later, but, you know, de- definitely around the 50 year mark, cardiovascular conditioning, as well as Um, You know, uh, uh, making sure that you are not neglecting that strength training and um, not just doing it on your own, but relying on uh, advice um, and uh, observation, at least initially, from a trained professional is very important. Um, You know, as far as eating right. uh, Can I I I dive into the
0: exercise piece a little bit, Rob? So I really, you know, I'm a huge proponent of the yearly physical with a PT, a physical Mm -hmm. therapist. You know, and especially, you know, I think if you're healthy in 30, you probably don't need it, but right around 45, 50, you know, Mm -hmm. that things start to kind of break down a little bit. The blood flow to the rotator cuff changes, the blood flow to the proximal musculature changes. You know, I think the yearly physical is huge just to break down, Hey, these are your strengths and weaknesses. You know, what a physical therapist does is they literally assess range of motion and and muscle strength. Um, So we could break down specifically where you're weak and it might just be three to five exercises that you do throughout the course of, you know, two to three days a week. And you're preventing that rotator cuff tear that 60% of people have after the age of 50. Right. So (laughs) little things like that. And then just quad strengthening, watching it. There's just such a myriad of different ways to do a squat, but, you know, factoring in, you know, if the person, person has, you know, bad knees or conor patella, or they've been a runner or their activity tolerance in the past, It's just there are so many factors that go into an exercise program That's I think, to your point, I think it's really important that, you know, a PT have a look, a good, you know, a certified PT who's, you know, functional movement, SFMA maybe certified. You can really look and break down the motion, you know, and and I would say that would start at age 45 or 50 and just like look at everything, see what's going on and, and prescribe. And you're right, maybe one or two visits, especially if there's no pain. They do their exercises, check in with you maybe in three to four months, and say, "Hey, Sean, this program's going great." Hey, Sean, this program. I'm still having some shoulder pain. What can I do to fix that? Mm-hmm. Um, huge. And then the balance piece too, just to touch on that. And, and this again, that, like the whole exercise thing could probably be an entire, an entire webinar too. But um, you know, the balance. A big question that I get, especially for my older patients, is can balance be improved, right? And I think you, yeah. need to, you need to speak to the three different systems, which is vestibular, it's vision, and then it's somatosensory or what you get from your feet or your hands, right? So um, a lot of times we'll see people with BPPV, and I'm sure you get that a lot too, and that can lead to a fall, that can lead to an injurious fall. And, and that's just as simple as doing a, a really easy maneuver. So mm-hmm. um, just different things, and, and maybe we can touch on the BPPV. BPP thing. And it's not always that simple. It's not always just a positional vertigo, but, um, you know, that can cause a fall too. And and the point Mm of this webinar really, you know, from an orthopedic sense is we want to prevent falls number one, because Mm -hmm. that can lead to hip fractures and and, and, and like, you know, other things, you know, hit you, hit your head, things like that that can yeah. increase your risk for mortality. That's a huge thing. But
1: and I'm glad that you mentioned BPPV because I know that one of the other points that we want to touch on at some point today was uh, medications to try to avoid. And um, yeah. Oftentimes, uh, people will go in with dizziness either to the emergency room, urgent care or primary care, and they'll get prescribed um, a uh, anti-vertigo medicine like meclizine, which can help a little bit in the short term. Uh, But if uh, that's all that somebody is doing in order to uh, try to help themselves, it can actually be detrimental. You know, it it can create a dependence on the medication. You withdraw the medication. The vertigo actually gets worse and they, they get side effects from the medication fall because of that. Whereas if it is benign paroxysmal positional vertigo, then uh, that can be fixed non-pharmacologically by physical therapy maneuvers, um, namely the Epley maneuver in in order to reorient to uh, little calcium stones that have built up with age in the, the vestibular organ. And in the la- in the labyrinth there and, um, uh, uh resolve essentially the vertigo and m- might there still be episodes that require uh, repeat maneuvers and assessments? Yes. But, uh, it's, uh, uh voids, um, uh, great discomfort, um, deconditioning because people can't do what they would normally do and it avoids, uh, the unnecessary use of medications. So, um, I'm, I'm really glad that, uh, that you mentioned that. And can you touch on
0: the, just the different types of dizziness too that folks can, you know, they present your office with?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, oftentimes it ends up yeah, first sorting out semantics. So people will say they're dizzy. Um, uh, oftentimes when I ask, well, is the room spinning around you or do you feel like you are spinning? The answer is no. And, uh, the, uh, ultimate, um, uh, verdict is that it's not true dizziness, it's lightheadedness, at which point we're looking at hydration status, we're looking at blood pressure swings, uh, we're looking at other neuro- underlying neurologic disorders such as Parkinson's, which can cause blood pressure swings, um, and uh, ways to uh, modify those kinds of things rather than focusing on what one thinks is dizziness. Um, you know, but uh, as far as, you know, if it is vertigo, vertiginous, uh the, you know, is the, uh, dizzy, dizziness vertiginous? Do you feel like there's that actual spinning sensation that you can see and feel uh, then you are looking at either peripheral or central, uh, vertigo peripheral, uh, like you said, being the inner ear central being, um, you know, uh, oftentimes because of something like a stroke, unfortunately that has uh, left some of the brain tissue uh, damage that, um, uh, you know, would normally allow uh, somebody to perceive their world and balance well. Um, yeah, so, so, you know, it uh, definitely has a bearing on initial assessment and treatment as well as uh, uh, prevention if we're looking at cerebral vascular disease. Um, whereas if uh, you have uh, peripheral uh, vertigo um, in the inner ear, then, you um, uh, referring somebody to a, a, a trained physical therapist to do those kinds of maneuvers um, uh, is the uh, is the best treatment. Yeah, that's great.
0: So let's talk about. So you were meant. You were. We were talking about stroke and you know and central causes. Let's talk about nutrition. Let's dial it back and talk about ways to you know, potentially prevent, hopefully prevent stroke, you know, for that 50 year old, 60 year old, you know, let's talk about that. How, how should they change their habits? What are mm-hmm. some small things people can change? You know, I, I think we should start about, talk about the ideal diet and then,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and then maybe just dive into some small, like turning the dial changes that people can make, um, if mm-hmm. they don't want to, you know, completely overhaul their, <laughs> their entire Yeah. Diet.
1: yeah. So, so, um the one broad thing that i was going to say about uh eating right uh, so to speak uh is um what a lot of dietitians will say which is eat the rainbow you know if if you um uh, think about trying to eat a wide variety you know of course um Fruits and vegetables and whole grains. Uh, everybody on this call is probably aware uh, that that uh, those kinds of foods are better than the processed sweets. Um, you know, high fat foods, high especially high saturated fat foods, things containing um, not oils but um, uh, more along the lines of butters and creams. Um, you know, th- those are uh, some. Uh, high level guiding factors in trying to achieve a better diet. But as long as you have that in mind, then proceeding forward, what's the, what are the next steps in trying to think properly about diet um, and that idea of eating the rainbow. Um, so if you have your uh, uh, three favorite fruits and fr- three favorite vegetables, that's good. But if all of the fruits are orange and all of the vegetables are um Uh, let's say uh, uh, green, uh, while that's good, if that's the only thing that you're eating, then you're likely to get into vitamin deficits. Um, You're uh, not going to be getting complete plant proteins when you're trying to uh, make plants and not red meat, uh, uh, for example, as more of a primary uh, protein source. Um, So if you're uh, looking at uh, vegetables, just to dial in even further, and you can uh, uh, bring yourself to eat uh, green beans one night, uh, beets the next night, um, uh, cauliflower the night after that, broccoli the night after that, and so forth, um, then you're going to be in a lot better position nutritionally uh, than you otherwise would be if you have too narrow of a focus on uh, just a couple of uh, fruits and vegetables. Um, uh, so that that's one guiding factor. And as I alluded to trying to get um, any animal proteins for more lean uh, proteins, such as uh uh, poultry and fish, uh, then you'll be in a lot better position. And particularly, a lot of forms of fatty fish will have those good omega-3 fatty acids in there that are good for uh, 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 neurologic function. So, um, you know, th- those are some of the things that immediately jump to mind that people uh, can and should be thinking about uh, in terms of the broad overview of the diet. And what
0: are your feelings on a multivitamin?
1: Glad you asked. I have that down here. I wanted to make sure that I addressed that. So, uh, my, one of my favorite sayings is that by and large, a multivitamin will usually only serve to make expensive urine. Um, you, you know, the, a lot of these vitamins have um, uh, too much in terms of daily value of e- each of these elements, and the elements are. Uh, often not absorbed, uh, nearly as well as they could be as if they were getting, being, uh, gotten from a food source. So rather than saying, oh, I'm taking a multivitamin, so I'm okay. Uh, that, uh, really doesn't hold water. It's, it's really making sure that you are getting natural vitamins from your food sources, is really using that food as medicine, uh, in order to, uh, get, get your daily value of everything and does that mean that you need to be tracking okay well you know that broccoli had so much folate so I'm good there and you know that um, that's exhausting it's completely time consuming and not attainable for most people um, so the, the uh, if, if you know that you are rotating your, you know, the color of your fruits and vegetables and eating um, uh, a lot of servings of each, each day and not overindulging in more concentrated sweets and red meat and everything, um, then you'll put yourself in a pretty good position. And to give a specific example of how a supplement is not always going to uh, be nearly as helpful as a food source, um, uh, vitamin D. So uh, about a decade ago, vitamin D became huge. And I think it's still very important, especially where Uh, We are, Sean, in the Northeast, where um, I'd say most of the population probably is vitamin D deficient unless they've done something about it uh, because of the lack of sunlight uh, around the year. Um, if somebody takes a vitamin D supplement, but they take it at six in the morning and they don't eat anything until nine o'clock, a lot of that vitamin D is going to go straight through because it's a fat soluble vitamin. It needs to, uh, this is an instance where, you know, your body needs fat. We know that our bodies need fat. So you don't want to be on a fat free diet. Um, you're not going to absorb most of that vitamin D. Um, so vitamins A, D, E, and K are fat soluble. They need some fat to be absorbed in the intestine and, um, uh, Uh, You know, so that's why, you know, in some circumstances, whole milk may not be such a bad thing because it contains vitamin D, it contains calcium, and it's got some fat in it. And and as long as you're not drinking a gallon of it each day, then you're not going to get too much lactose and you're not going to get too much saturated fat in your diet. So that's one specific example of um, uh, where uh, supplements uh, just are not going to cut it. You know, it's really
0: interesting. So the supplements it's just really, it's so tough, right? Because, and to your exact point, I mean, you need sunlight to synthesize vitamin D, right? So, Mm -hmm. you know, and then, you know, do you take your supplement with a a glass of milk in the morning, the full, you know, is the whole fat milk, you know, Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Like, I guess that's what you're saying. Maybe you'd recommend, right? Like just a glass of whole milk with the, with the multivitamin to get the most out of it, you know? But I think that's a really interesting point. I I think, you know, we try to do our best to eat the rainbow, nobody's perfect, you know, and I I think that's where, um, and it's so tough. I I wish there was a scenario where, and I think some private nutritionists do this, uh, in the Boston area, but they'll take blood and then they'll tell you your exact nutritional profile and where you're Mm -hmm. at with every single vitamin. And and really our medical system doesn't do that. It just tells us where, you know, H and H is and, you know, all the, Mm -hmm. you know, the other, you know, maybe, and I don't even know if I'd call them more important or less important. It's just, you know, the typical panels that we run don't yeah. qualify what our nutrition actually, you know, you know, as a lagging indicator won't tell mm-hmm. us what our nutrition is like, you know, and that's too bad. I wish that would help hugely in a preventative piece mm-hmm. um, to, to, use your words. I mean, we, you know, nutrition is, you know, that's, you know, that's a medicine, you know, your food is food is medicine. So if we can use it properly and, and have the right consultation, that's, you know, that could really change
1: some lives. Yeah, absolutely. agree. Uh, what's the next thing we gonna?
0: You're gonna jump <laughs> on there.
1: Um, um, well, we we we. I, I also mentioned avoiding toxic habits and staying socially engaged. So yeah, let's uh, talk about that. Yeah, so, so t- toxic habits, you know, um, uh, a lot of people are uh, well aware, you know, any kind of substance misuse, abuse is going to be detrimental, both in the short term, in a lot of cases, as well as long term. So avoidance of um, uh, overindulging in alcohol, uh, tobacco, um, uh Uh, other, uh, other drugs, even ones that have been recently legalized, um, can be um, uh, detrimental in the long, uh, long run. Um, And, you know, uh, uh, I'm not sure if there's really too much more to uh, say or take time about that other than, um, you know, specifically uh, focusing on alcohol for a moment, you know, there they, alcohol is kind of uh, uh, like uh, eggs in terms of, oh, some of it is good, oh no, it's all bad, and th- this kind of pe- pendulum saying eggs are good, eggs are bad for you, eggs are good for you, eggs are bad for you. Same with alcohol, you know, there uh, was one point where, you know, two drinks per day was okay, and then you know, there's some cancer studies saying, Oh, maybe really just scale it back to, to one because of the, the cancer risk. But then there's the other end of the uh, uh, side of the table where uh, a glass of red wine per day probably does help some with uh, cardiovascular disease risk. And that is a real thing. So, um, you know, the best. Uh, thing to say, I think for a lot of these kinds of things is, uh, truly moderation and avoidance of binge drinking, I think is very important. Um, you know, cause even if you only have seven, uh, drinks of alcohol, standard drinks of alcohol per week, um, if you're having them all at one time, then that can be very toxic. So, um, uh, uh moderation and, um, Uh, truly adhering to the the letter uh, of the law in terms of uh, what's considered to be safe at any given time with the best knowledge that we have. Um, So that's what really all that I have to say about that. And then um, staying socially engaged. uh, One of the things that I would uh, always advise people as they uh, get older is what's your support structure where well, you know is it family is it friends um, is um, is your geographic location uh, the best in terms of uh, considering where you're living now versus where maybe you should be um, in the decades to come um, you know it's uh, really important to uh, be uh, uh, near a, um, a support structure that you can, lean on, so to speak, and not necessarily um, uh, 24-7, not uh, uh, to the point where, you know, you would uh, necessarily feel uncomfortable in asking uh, uh, people for help, but just assuming that it's Uh, family that you're talking about, moving closer to family as you enter into the later decades of life, Um, not necessarily because you need help now, but because you might need help um, uh, later on, and then not being afraid to um, ask for um, uh, that help when you truly need it. You know, a lot of people are afraid of being a burden to their families. And my response to that is a lot of families don't feel that way. Um, and they would then they want to help uh, the older members of their family. And the uh, other part of it is, if you ask for help earlier on, when it might not be as rightly recognizable by other members of your family, that that you need help, then you very well might be able to avoid um, um, more severe or even catastrophic events that end up truly facing even more burden than, otherwise would have uh, been occurring on your family. Um, so, you know, it's very natural to want to avoid that and to not uh, need to be cared for in any way and be independent and that should be encouraged. But a way to encourage that actually a little bit of counter-intuitively is to engage in your support structure earlier on before uh, things get worse. And oftentimes things can be uh, helped uh, either back to uh, prior baseline, or at least closer, uh, such that um, uh, bigger burdens don't happen over uh, uh, overall to everybody later on. Um, and the um, the other piece of um, staying engaged with um, your support structure is just really for overall mental and physical health. Uh, we've seen a huge amount of decline, especially in older adults, in Uh, their mental status and depression and anxiety over uh, the pandemic, um, because of just the inability to engage. And yes, it's good that we have modalities like this, like Zoom, where we can reach out and engage. But it's uh, in a lot of cases, it just hasn't been enough. And even people who did not get uh, COVID themselves did not uh, start out with any kind of dementia, really took a huge uh, dive in terms of uh, uh, function, Ability to care for themselves, uh, unintentional weight loss, depression, and they don't look like the same people as uh, back in two thousand and nineteen. Not because of any other event uh, besides just being uh, socially isolated. So very, very important.
0: It's incredible, you know. And I think you know the toll that the pandemic has taken. You know, not only on mental health, but um, you know on memory. You know, and, and, and you know, just I'm sure the memory units and just we take, for, we take for granted just the social interactions that you have and how that can challenge your brain, right? Because you have to respond. You have to think maybe outside of the box a little bit when you're having a normal social interaction. And, um, you know, that was lost during COVID and, and it really probably especially affected, you know, 70, 80 plus population, you know, yeah. like they're not seeing their kids every day saying, you know, how's it my grandchild or this or that it's, yeah. you know, much more, you know, it's less, um, I call it brain work, right? You're just not using the same, um, you know, you're not using your brain. And if we, if we look at the brain as a muscle and you're not challenging it, it's going to atrophy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and another piece that I think we should touch on just with that is, um, falls, right? So how often, you know, with a, a weaker support structure, you know, or just weaker communication with our, with our, our aging loved ones, will they just not report a fall? You know, mm-hmm. you'll you'll notice they'll have a little scuff, you know, and I think some of the, telltale signs are either, you know, a mark on the face or a mark on the arms, hands, that sort of thing on the legs. And just, you know, I think as uh, a concerned loved one, it's, it's fair to ask, Hey, you know, mom or dad, or, you know, grandma, grandpa, you know, is everything all right? You know, what's, you know, what happened? And if you start to see a pattern, you know, that's something we just want to address. And, and, And I think that starts at the primary care level or the geriatrician level and say, Hey, listen, you know, you just have to bring this up and, and the fear of getting sent to a nursing home or an assisted living is just, you just, yeah. you will be there if you don't have the conversation today. And that's what needs to happen because right. we, if we can prevent it, which you can just by strengthening some muscles, most 90% of the time, we can strengthen up a little bit and address it, address the balance and change it. Then you won't end up in a skilled nursing facility for 90 days and then discharge right. home with, you know, full-time home health. We just don't want that scenario. So just the transparency is huge
1: there. Yes. Yeah. No, absolutely agree. Um, and yeah, earlier is better in terms of, of intervention. Um, and if you miss that opportunity, sometimes there's no going back. Right.
0: It's tough. You know, we all know the stats with the hip fracture of, you know, you fracture a hip, you know, there's a high, very high mortality rate within a year.
1: Um, yeah, Yeah. we're we're avoiding about a third. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So 33% of people pass, pass away within a year after a hip fracture. So, um, those aren't great statistics. So we try to avoid them, you know, and, um, you know, PT is, is a huge part of that, but, you know, the same thing with you, Rob, you know, noticing balance issues, you know, doing a Romberg test, closing your, like checking everything is, is huge. Let's talk about, you know, we're kind of coming up in the hour here, but let's just talk about polypharmacy. Let's talk about prescriptions. Yeah. Um, which ones do you tend to stay away from? Which ones, you know, are your go-to's, I guess, for, for different conditions. Um, would love yeah. for you to touch on that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, uh, I'll tell you about what I try to avoid, and go and go from there. So, um, anything that is going to be uh, sedating, uh, mind altering, uh, sensation altering, I try to avoid. So, uh, one of the first places we go, of course, is opioid medications, but even other medications like bladder antispasmodics that might uh, help to uh, prevent. Um, uh, uh, overactive bladder or urinary incontinence, which are good. Um, you know, maybe sometimes some bladder retraining, um, some pelvic floor muscle, uh, strengthening, could avoid and obviate the, the need for, um, the, uh, uh, additional medications. And it's just taking that one further step of what else besides pills can we throw at this thing, whatever the problem is. Um, so that's uh, one thing that we should always keep coming back to is what else is there in medicine besides medicine to uh, help to address an issue. Um, so anything that is uh, 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 sedating or sensation altering at all. Um, uh yeah, Even those that are not like uh, uh, NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, uh, ibuprofen, naproxen, Motrin, uh, Aleve, all of these can be very good in some circumstances, especially short-term in the right individuals. Uh, however, they can be uh, dangerous and lead to uh, complications, hospitalizations, and even death in some other individuals, especially those at increased risk for uh, bleeding, particularly gastrointestinal bleeding. Think about stomach ulcers. And those with cardiovascular disease, the way that NSAIDs work is that they um, uh, constrict the arteries, thereby decreasing inflammation. And if uh, one of your problems is artery narrowing at baseline, then you have to be really careful about that. So um, by and large, people with cardiovascular disease, I avoid NSAID medications in, or if it's really going to uh, uh, be likely to to help in a very discreet time period period. And, um, you know, I know that their cardiovascular disease is stable. Um, uh, sometimes I will put somebody on one week of naproxen um, and just limit it to that. And I pick naproxen because it has been shown to have you know, just a, a little bit less cardiovascular risk associated. So I, I limit the course in those cases. And um, if it's uh, a patient uh, who doesn't have cardiovascular disease, um, I always, I uh, company and NSAID medication with a stomach protector, either a proton pump inhibitor like omeprazole, Prilosec, if they're going to need to be on it for a longer term emphasis on need, we really wanted to find, uh, you know, how frequently, how much and for how long, uh, you need any medication and then cut it off or taper it off after that. Um, if it's uh, safe and effective to do so. And, um, uh, then um, the, 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 the other thing that I will use in conjunction with an as-needed NSAID medication, oh, I take ibuprofen every so often for my knee because it acts up twice per month and it really helps me. I'll say, okay, take some uh, Pepsid, uh, famotidine uh, over the counter, whenever you take an ibuprofen and that'll protect your stomach. Take it w- uh, with food, uh, that'll uh, protect your stomach. You don't have any underlying cardiovascular disease. The use of the NSAID is limited and fine you know you'll probably have a good risk to benefit ratio uh in using a medication uh that way because it's actually promoting function and what's the bigger risk in that scenario a decline in function because of pain so you always have to talk with your doctor and weigh risks and benefits of absolutely every uh intervention um and uh just one, just one other last oh go
0: ahead yeah we'll just pause there so uh yeah. the NSAIDs obviously i you know i don't prescribe them personally, but you know, I rock, I highly recommend them in, in a lot of cases. Yeah. Um you know, and it's funny because I've never really thought about the va- vasoconstriction component of it. I just think of the mm-hmm. acute inflammatory component and trying to control that for, you know, a tendonitis or, or you know some sort of inflammatory. Yeah, it's great for that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but my question to you is at what age did patients need to stop start worrying about um like a a stomach bleed or, or an ulcer there? Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, After age 60, it starts to uh, uh, rise. Uh, the, 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 the curve of incidence starts to rise pretty intensely. Um, uh, of course, before that age, uh, anybody uh, can unfortunately have um, a bad family history of coronary artery disease and be predisposed themselves or have had an early uh, heart attack at age 45. So um, you know, so for, for all comers in general above age 60, become more careful, but always consider your own past medical history and family history. great. great. Yeah. one other class of medications that I, uh, uh do want to, uh, mention, and that goes a little bit, I think, uh, outside the scope of this talk, but is really important when you're talking about polypharmacy in older adults is, uh, laxatives. A ton of people, um, uh, as, uh, they get older and start to have difficulties with constipation. There are a lot of, over the counter, um, uh, medications that are available as well as prescribed. And one take home point in terms of, um, medications uh, uh, from that perspective that I uh, want everybody to know is to try to avoid stimulant laxatives or at least very regular use of stimulant laxatives. Um, uh, Primarily um, things like uh, Senna, which can work great to um, uh, clean somebody out, but uh, can definitely cause colonic inertia, inability to uh, uh past stool without taking the medication. Um, you really develop a physiologic, physiologic dependence on uh, stimulant laxatives. Um, so trying to stay well hydrated is first and foremost if you're having constipation issues and uh, adding a warm cup of prune juice at night um, uh, can really help as well. And if you really need something extra, an osmotic uh, laxative that pulls water into the stool and makes it easier to go rather than really being uh, heavy stimulant um, uh, can can really help, and then using that as infrequently as possible in order to achieve the uh, desired effect. And this being things like Miralax, polyethylene glycol. Uh, so that's the one other uh, uh, medication point that I wanted to make.
0: Yeah, and so what are you saying is sequela to constipation?
1: <laughs> so. Um, counterintuitively uh, diarrhea if somebody doesn't address their constipation then they can uh, uh, develop uh, heavy stool impaction around which uh, liquid stool will start to leak and i think while i'm having fecal incontinence of all of this liquid stool um, i shouldn't be taking a laxative but um, uh, that r- really uh, gets into sometimes a dire situation because that's an impending bowel obstruction even though somebody is um, you know ha- having a, a, a problem with liquid Liquid uh, fecal incontinence. So, talk to your
0: geriatrician if you're having constipation. Yeah, make sure that uh, you know you're on your and Miralax is what you'd recommend, and that pulls water yeah. into the
1: stool. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But uh, hydration first, prune juice probably second. Might have some implications if you're a diabetic because there's a lot of sugar in that. And um, uh, then, if you really need to move to some kind of uh, traditional medication, uh, Miralax.
0: It's interesting too, Rob, because we get a lot of um, Low back pain, and we, we do have a women's women's health specialist on staff mm-hmm. here. Um, you know that that is triggered by constipation. You know, low back mm-hmm. pain and, and sciatica yeah. and, and things like that. That um, you know, there is a layer to the onion there that may have been constipation, right? And we're treating orthopedically something that mm-hmm. um, you know is a, in a totally different system of of, of healthcare, um, right? That's really interesting. So yeah, I mean, this has been great. I mean, super informative, Rob. Um, anything else that you wanted to touch on before uh, before we uh, sign off
1: here? Um, yeah, I think we, we, we covered a lot round. ground. Thank you very, very much for having me. It's been great talking to you. And I hope that everybody on uh, uh, the call has gleaned um, something useful for themselves, for family members, hopefully for both. And, um, uh, you know, in terms of any uh, parting words, I would say, um, you know, Really, I think the most effective thing that I can do is to echo something that you said earlier, which is even if at the point where you are in your life, you're feeling good, you're functioning well, you can uh, uh, play your golf and not feel like you're getting injured right now. You know, you can go on walks with your with your dogs, you can um, play with your grandkids on uh, the beach and it doesn't seem like a problem. It's a really good idea to not just uh, go for a physical with your doctor, but to um, uh, uh, go for a physical with your um, uh, doctor of physical therapy as well. And um, uh, uh, identify those areas that are weak, um, and might uh, not be bubbling to the surface until a decade later. And you could really do something very positive about it now, because that's going to prevent uh, decline, uh, not just physically, emotionally, but uh, medically. Um, So um, uh, I really appreciate uh, and advocate for that point. Love
0: that. A little public service announcement from uh, Dr. Rob. Well, this has been great. Really appreciate you having, having you on and, uh, thanks for your time.
1: Yeah. Thank you for having
0: me. I really enjoyed it. My pleasure. All right, Rob, thanks so much. You have a great day.
1: You too. Be well, everybody.
0: Thanks again for joining us for this week's Hooked on Health podcast. Please check out our website in the link below. Whether you're listening on Spotify or on our page, you can reach me personally by email for more information.